0: One hundred years ago, on a fall afternoon, an Englishman named Green was walking through the woods, and he came upon a stranger in the path, startled when the stranger smiled, waved at him, and said, Oh, hello, Mr. Green. Obviously not a stranger at all, but for the life of him, Mr. Green could not place the man. Embarrassed, but unwilling to admit to a poor memory, Mr. Green offered his hand. "'Ah, yes, hello. Good to see you, old boy. How long has it been?' "'Well,' said the other man, "'it was at Lady Asquith's reception last October, wasn't it? "'Nearly a year then.' Mr. Green remembered the reception. He tried to recall all of the people he had met. This gentleman's face looked so familiar, but he just couldn't place it. Still groping for clues to this fellow's identity, Green decided to ask a few questions. How is your wife? Quite well, said the other man. Mr. Green continued, And you? Are you still in the same business, I presume? Oh, yes, said the other man, with a merry twinkle in his eye. I'm still the king of England. (laughs) Mr. Green! Behold your King And that introduces us to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew would stand up today and say to us, "Behold your king. That is the title of the book of Matthew. That is the overarching theme and summary of this great gospel, The Gospel according to Matthew. Levi was his given name. One of the twelve, in fact, but a tax collector. We'll say a lot more about that later, but he was a traitor to his own people. He was in no man's land. The Romans didn't love him, they used him. The Jews hated him as a traitor to his own. And he wrote this good news for the world, really, probably before A.D. 70, probably sometime between 50 and 60 A.D., he wrote this gospel. We know for certain that it was before A.D. 70 because that's when Jerusalem was destroyed. And there's no hint and there's no mention of that as a historic event. It certainly prophesied in this gospel, but it had not happened yet. Today, we're going to introduce to you the gospel of Matthew. Next Sunday, we will begin in the text itself. But today, the lay of the land. Today, the bird's eye view from 35,000 feet. Before we dig into the details, we need to see the book as a whole. Matthew is a Jew writing to his fellow Jews primarily about a Jewish king, and he does so in a very Jewish way. Matthew was quite intelligent. In fact, we could say without exaggeration that he was an Old Testament expert. He was an Old Testament theologian and exegete. And yet he was a humble man of God. In the book of Matthew, we will find approximately 55 Old Testament quotes. We will find 70 Old Testament allusions. Nine times we will see these words, quote, that... What was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. That what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Nine times in Matthew, not once in the other Gospels. Nine times in Matthew, he calls Jesus the Son of David. Only six times do we find that phrase in the other three Gospels. This all led J. Vernon McGee, many of you know that name... He's with the Lord now. He was a great preacher from the past and a great Southerner. J. Vernon McGee said this about Matthew. He said, This gospel stands like a swinging door between the two Testaments. It swings back into the Old Testament and gathers up prophecies fulfilled at the first coming of Christ. And it swings into the New Testament and speaks of a new creation of God. Upon this rock I will build my church, Matthew 16:18. In fact, Matthew's the only gospel that mentions the church. he does so twice. This church of Jews and Gentiles. Amen? This church of two people groups brought together because Christ abolished the dividing wall and brought these two and made them into one new man. The key to understand the gospel of Matthew, is a phrase. This phrase is in this gospel 32 times. And you cannot find it, listen, you cannot find it anywhere else in the Bible. It is the kingdom of heaven. 32 times in the gospel of Matthew, correction, is nowhere else in the New Testament. What is this kingdom of heaven that he will speak of so often? It's simply this. God's kingdom on this earth with heaven standard. And in the gospel of Matthew this kingdom has come near in the person of the king. We'll say much more about that. That's the shortest most concise definition. All you need for now is the kingdom of heaven is God's kingdom on this earth with heaven standard. The kingdom of heaven is a distinctly Jewish way of describing the kingdom of God. This is Jewish wording. It reminds me of Daniel 4.26. When Nebuchadnezzar had to learn, quote, that heaven rules. You remember that? Daniel 4.26. It is heaven that rules. And in our translations, heaven is actually capitalized. Because what's going on there is just another way of saying it is God who rules, right? Right? When we say heaven rules, we mean God rules. And so this is just another way of saying the kingdom of God. Matthew is a Jewish person writing to Jewish people. He uses Jewish wording. Kingdom of God is a favorite phrase for Mark and Luke because they're writing to Gentiles. And they use that phrase 46 times in Mark and Luke. But they never use kingdom of heaven. Matthew will actually use kingdom of God. He'll do it four times. What you need to remember this morning is kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same thing. They're synonymous. They're equal in meaning. And you've got gospel writers using these terms prolifically depending on their audience. Well, that leads us to the main interpretive challenge of the book of Matthew. When you're introducing a book, when you're trying to get the lay of the land, you have to wrestle with what are the big issue, interpretive issues of this book. And so here it is. There's really just one. We'll spend a little bit of time here this morning. Understanding how the kingdom of heaven slash kingdom of God was offered to Israel, who then rejected it and the king, and how this fits into God's Plan and program for Israel and for the world. And so, as Christians have wrestled with that question, that challenge, two primary general answers have come forth. Number one, did God reject Israel forever? Did God reject Israel completely and turn to the Gentiles and is now doing a different work among the Gentiles building the church and Israel has been set aside, permanent divorce from their heavenly husband? This is one interpretation of Matthew. This is called covenant theology or also known as replacement theology. This is where the kingdom of God is now a spiritual thing that is present in God's people. This is where the church has replaced Israel, and God is now done with them. They have no future, and He's moving forward with the Gentiles. Covenant or replacement theology then does not believe in a pre millennial return of Christ, it does not believe in a literal thousand year kingdom of Christ on earth. All of those promises for that in the Old Testament are then spiritualized and allegorized. Not, no longer literal promises of a people in a place, on a land, on dirt, with real trees being very productive and so forth. And so all of those things have to become spiritualized in covenant or replacement theology. The other option would go like this. Did he reject that particular generation of Israel and postpone the kingdom until a future generation of repentant Jews. This is known as dispensationalism or dispensational theology, and that is what we hold to as Kerbal Bible Church. That is what we believe, and that is the interpretive framework by which we will interpret Matthew We believe there is a future for national ethnic Israel. That they will be restored in their land. That King Jesus will come to this earth and have his kingdom promises fulfilled literally to the children of Abraham. And that the church has been grafted in to this olive branch. This led J. Vernon McGee once again, I think, to say this. And I, wow, this is a great quote. He said, you must know Matthew To understand the Bible. You can no more understand the Bible without understanding the gospel of Matthew. Than you can write without an alphabet. And he's saying that because Matthew will teach us correct theology about the kingdom. And this is going to be one of the most relevant lessons for all of us. Because there is so much confusion in our day and age about the kingdom. And what it is and where it is and when it will be. Matthew will straighten us out. Now, every gospel writer, as you probably know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every gospel writer has a main purpose, right? They have a main point they're trying to make, a main argument that their particular gospel is trying to make. See, gospels are not biographies, and Gospels are not historical narratives of every single thing that might have happened in some chronological order. That's not what they are. They are writings about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And every writer comes at it with their own unique purpose in mind. It's the same Christ. It's the same diamond. But we're going to look at it from different angles, right? And so they each have this purpose. If I was to say to you the purpose of presenting Jesus as the divine Son of God, you would say that's the Gospel of John, right? If I was to say Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord, you would answer that's the Gospel of Mark. Jesus as the perfect Son of Man, that's Luke. But what about Matthew? What is Matthew's main purpose? And here it gets a little more complex, actually. The other three Gospels, you can clearly discern one purpose. But in Matthew, it is actually a two-point argument. It's a twin purpose. And this is critical to understanding this book. The first is, of course, that Jesus is the prophesied King of Israel. He's going to gather up all of these prophecies. He's going to say over and over again so that it may be fulfilled and it's fulfilled in Christ. And he's writing this to his Jewish brethren. And he's saying, this Jesus of Nazareth, promised and prophesied in the Old Testament, has come. This is who he is. This is what he taught. This is what happened. Your Messiah, Israel, has come. Your King has been presented. That's his first argument. But the second one is equally important and it's related to the first. Matthew's second purpose is to tell us that Jesus offered the kingdom to Israel and it was rejected. He offered God's kingdom come. He offered this in a legitimate, real offer to His own people. They understood the offer and they rejected it and Him. And to show their rejection, they nailed Him to a cross. This brings us to our first slide I want to show you today. And that's just simply the outline of the Gospel of Matthew. And you can see this in the most basic of outlines. Chapters 1 to 10, the presentation of the King. We could also call that the offer of the Kingdom. They go together. They always go together. You don't have a King without a Kingdom. You don't have a kingdom without a king. So 1 to 10 is the presentation of the king. But then 11 to 28, right? Almost two-thirds of the gospel is the rejection of the king and the rejection of the offer of the kingdom. In fact, John MacArthur has said that the shadow of rejection lies over the entire gospel. We'll see evidence of it right away in chapter 2. This hatred, this demonic rejection of King Jesus. Now why is this so critical that we recognize both purposes in Matthew? That we recognize that this book has not just one simple aim, but two. Because you've got to go back to who is Matthew writing to primarily in the first century. He's writing to a Jewish reader. He's writing to an informed Jewish reader. A person with The Old Testament. And as he writes to this informed Jewish reader, and he tells them that this Jesus of Nazareth is your king, that person is then going to ask the most obvious, most legitimate question. The natural question. Matthew says, Jesus is your king. They're going to say, then where is the kingdom? Matthew's going to say, this man who was crucified, buried, rose from the dead, and is ascended into heaven. They're going to say, then then where is the kingdom? Why is Rome still here? Why are we still occupied? Why are there still tax collectors? Where's peace and prosperity that is to abound? And that is a legitimate question, and it is a right question, and it's an Old Testament-rooted question. And Matthew's answer to them is this. It is postponed. It's not rejected forever. It's not gone forever. You don't have, you're not out of line to have that hope. His answer will be that that you expect is postponed. I need to throw in a note here. I don't know where else to throw it in, but right now. Matthew will make no attempt to go in chronological order. Now, this bugs us, doesn't it? <laughs> we are Westerners. We are linear thinking, thinking people. We love biographies because they start with a person's birth and they go all the way to their death and they just go in order. It's the way we expect things to go. That is not what he does. He makes no attempt to do that. He actually alternates. You want to get even more frustrated. He'll actually alternate between being chronological and then being topical and not chronological... And then returning to being chronological. (laughs) How do you like them apples? Okay? So chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, he's generally chronological. And then on the back end of the book, he'll be generally chronological. And in between, he'll move things around out of order in which they happen to suit his purpose. So you've got to keep that in mind. The most chronological of the Gospels is Luke. If you are... Curious. Matthew was a very structured person, a very organized person. Every gospel has a structure. His has got a very clear one. And this is probably the most important part of this introduction. Okay, so really pay attention here. Matthew has organized his book along five blocks of Jesus' teaching. Five major blocks of teaching. And listen carefully. Each block is preceded by a section of narrative. And the narrative has miracles. And then the block of teaching. And then each block of teaching is followed by responses of the people. So the order is simply this. You have narrative with miracles that preps you for the teaching which calls for a response. And there's five of these throughout the book. That's how he structures the book. This is where a red letter Bible is really helpful. Because you can see this clearly. I want to give you an example of this. It's the first one. So turn in Matthew chapter 4. And look at the end of the chapter there. Matthew 4. In verse 23 and 24. Okay, so we have the narrative in chapters 3 and 4. And at the end of the narrative, verse 23 says, Jesus is going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And here it is, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. There's your miracles. Verse twenty four. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So there's your narrative with miracles that's prepping the reader for the teaching that is to follow. The teaching is chapters five, six, and seven, all right? The Sermon on the Mount. Now look at the end of chapter 7. In verses 28 and 29. We now come to the responses. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. That verse 28 will be basically repeated four more times in the Gospel of Matthew. At the end of a teaching section, there will be some type language that says, when Jesus had finished these words, this happened. Response happened. And so that's the key structure to this book. Now, two critical lessons uh, really slap us in the face this morning from this structure, from this approach to the Gospel of Matthew. Two critical applications already, alright? Number one, the purpose of miracles is not to engender saving faith. The purpose of miracles is to authenticate and validate the teacher and the teaching. The message and the messenger. That's what this structure is showing us. We're going to give you the miracles and then the teaching and then the response. Meaning, the purpose of those miracles points to the teaching, not to the response. It points to validate the teacher and his message. This is why, primarily why, Jesus did miracles. Second critical lesson then. Responses in Matthew come after teaching, always. Not after miracles. So for Matthew... Listen, for Matthew, the key is trusting and obeying the King, not seeking miracles. What Matthew would say to every disciple is that you are to trust and obey the King, not chase after a miracle. You see, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of who? Christ. Faith comes from the teaching of Christ, not the miracles. The miracles validate the messenger, and then we are to respond to his message. Do we need miracles? Or do we need teaching? We need teaching. Ignorance is our problem. And Jesus shows us this so clearly throughout this gospel. So what are these five blocks of teaching? There they are. There they are. The Sermon on the Mount, 5 to 7. Missionary Instructions, chapter 10. Parables of the Kingdom, chapter 13, as the rejection ramps up. Who is greatest in the Kingdom, chapter 18. And then what's known as the Olivet Discourse, a teaching on end times, chapter 24 and 25. As you look at all of that teaching, remember that before each one is a narrative with miracles, and then the teaching, and then a response. All the way through that pattern is followed. If you add all of that up, it's about 30% of the Gospel. 30% of Matthew is Jesus' teaching. This is more than any other Gospel. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest extended block of Jesus' teaching anywhere in the Bible. And so if you love doctrine, if you love teaching, then you're going to love Matthew. That's his main go-to. Now when we get to the end of the book, when we get to the Great Commission, now we we'll to put all this together, okay? Are you tracking with me? When we get to the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and here it is, and... Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. When Jesus says in the Great Commission, Teaching them all that I have commanded, What is He talking about? That. That list of five... That. (laughs) That list of five blocks of teaching. Right? Go into all the world and teach them all that I have commanded. Are there any commands in these blocks of teaching? The Sermon on the Mount has about 56 commands. I think as I study the Sermon on the Mount, as I reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's going to start changing the way I preach. 56 some odd commands that Jesus gives to His followers in His preaching, in His teaching. So this is how we understand the Great Commission. Let's go to slide number 3. There are five major themes in the Gospel of Matthew. Again, bird's eye view, big picture. Now don't confuse the five major themes with the five blocks of teaching. They're different, though of course there's overlap. The five blocks of teaching contribute to and, and develop these five major themes. Number one is how we began this morning. Behold your king. This is the primary, most important theme of Matthew. He presents Jesus of Nazareth as the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Christ, and the King of Israel, as was predicted in the Old Testament. And by way of application, let me just say right now as sinners, sometimes we think that all we need is a Savior from our sins. Sometimes we think that all we need is for Jesus to die on the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. Yes, we need that. We desperately need a Savior from God's wrath. And Jesus is that Savior. The one and only. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way to have your sins forgiven this morning than the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll never diminish that. But sometimes, even as believers, we think that's where it stops. And we think, what I needed was a Savior. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that you equally need a King. You see, as sinners, we do not know how to run our lives. We do not know how to lead ourselves. We do not know how to lord or rule ourselves. We need someone to rule over us. We're broken. We're flawed. We're bent. We're perverted. We need a ruler. We need a master. We need a lord. We need a king. And I would argue that we need a king as much as we need a savior. You cannot cut Jesus Christ in half. You cannot divide Him in half and say, I'll take the Savior part and refuse the King part. You get all of Christ or you get none of Christ. I would say to you this morning, oh sinner, you need both a Savior and a King to reign over you. Number two, we've talked about this already, but it's a major theme. It is a legit kingdom offer. The King was present He offered his people Israel the promised earthly kingdom with himself as the king. Right? You can't have the kingdom without me. Okay? It was his offer. And this offer was soundly and completely rejected. So the kingdom is postponed until a future generation of Israelites who would repent, who will repent, and who will receive the kingdom. And receive their king. And that's still to come. We're waiting on that. And there's rumblings. There's rumblings going back to 1948 when modern Israel became a nation. And the regathering begins. And God is patient. And God is long-suffering. And Israel is a miracle. There's no way Israel is supposed to exist. They're a testimony to everything we're talking about. And these rumblings... Because one day the nation of Israel will repent. One day they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as for an only son. And God will fulfill the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant that he made to Israel. And we're just kind of getting the crumbs from the table as Gentiles. So what is the application to number two, this legitimate kingdom offer? The application is to pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I would plead with you to pray that on a regular basis. Theme number three, judgment is coming. Well, this is to be expected. There are horrible consequences if you reject the king. John the Baptist warns of these consequences. Jesus warns of these consequences. And so if number one and number two are true, then number three is inevitable, right? It's inevitable. One theme of the book of Matthew will be simply this. You need to repent and bring forth fruit that proves repentance. And you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and bring forth fruit fruit that proves that belief. Because there are horrible consequences if you do not repent and believe. Number four, then, is addressing believers. It's addressing repenters. It's addressing God's children. The fourth major theme is to live right. The word righteousness will be throughout this gospel, more so than any other gospel. There is a call here in Matthew for the subjects of the king to live by the king's standards. To practice a true righteousness versus a showy religion, right? And primarily this is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't try to show off your religion in this kind of hypocritical show that you put on for people. But practice true righteousness, true religion. This is the king's standards. And the king's subjects love his standards and want to obey him in them. And so live right, will simply be a theme of this Gospel. And then number five, go. Go with the message of the King. Go as a representative of the King, as an ambassador of the King. Everything in the Gospel of Matthew is building to the Great Commission. It is the climax of the book. The King's final words. Christ, you see, is on a mission to the nations. He's on a mission to the Gentiles. This is revealed to us from the very beginning. Come back next week and you will see. He is a gracious King. He is a benevolent King. He is a good King. And He is a King for all peoples. He's the King for the whole world. It's a Jewish man writing to Jewish people, but He slips in these hints that this Gospel is also for us. It's also for Gentiles. God also loves us. God has a plan for us. And Gentiles will respond to God's good news. That's what Matthew would tell us. There will be a response, so go to the nations with the message. Every Gentile response in the Gospel of Matthew is positive, And there are many of them. Every single one of them are positive. Encouragement to us to take the message to the world. Everything builds to the Great Commission then. The whole book. The whole book is leading up to the final great narrative. Do you remember the sequence? Narrative with a miracle. Teaching and response. The whole book is leading up to the last great narrative. It's chapter 26 and 27 and 28. And in that section of this final great narrative, you have the last miracle. You have the greatest miracle of all. You have the resurrection from the dead that's in chapter 28. And so we have narrative, and we have a miracle, and this is followed by Jesus' last words of the great commission. His last block of teaching, if you will, but it's not a big block. So it's not considered one of the five because it's actually a sixth block of teaching. It's Matthew 28:18 to 20. It's what we call the great commission. So we've got narrative and we've got miracle and we've got a block of teaching, but where is the response? We're in the response. We are living in the response because the gospel ends with the great commission. Will you respond to this king or will you reject him like the religious leadership? Will you respond to this king or will you just be a casual observer like some of the crowds? Will you unconditionally, wholeheartedly follow and submit to this king like Matthew, like the apostles who went on to fulfill the great commission in their day? You see, the gospel ends with the words of Jesus abruptly in verse twenty teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Stop. How will you respond? How will you respond to King Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are the King, but you're gracious. You're kind, You're good. And you extend your scepter of righteousness to those who will accept forgiveness on your terms. Lord, I am just convinced there's somebody sitting in here this morning who has rebelled against you their entire life. they played games. They've lived a religious life, perhaps. They've shown interest in church, but they've never submitted their life to you as their king, as their lord and their ruler. And I pray that you, by your grace, would... Bring that about today. Lord, I pray that you would give us a great hunger for your word. and That you would do great things in our church as we go through this journey of beholding our king in the gospel of Matthew. Sustain us that we might glorify you and edify each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.